TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. <laughs> Welcome back. It is Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. One hour down, 52 minutes to go. And then uh, it's Sunday afternoon, and hopefully the Mets won't look like they did yesterday. Uh, <laughs> But uh, joining us this segment, you know, it's April 25th. I did not know that was the date until I just looked in the corner of the screen. It's April 25th, and still, kids are not back in school full-time. To talk about that, we have Michael Cornell. He is the superintendent at Hamburg Central Schools and the president of the Erie Niagara School Superintendents Association. Mike, good morning. Morning, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well, Michael. Now, Tomorrow, in some districts, I'm not sure if this is in Hamburg as well, we are going to see more grades go back full-time. Is that correct? In the Hamburg Central School District, we will have our pre-K through 5 students uh, in school, fully in-person, cohorts A, B, and C, which is the vast majority of our students. I think that's true across most school districts uh, in western New York. And what are the uh, precautions? So we know that six feet goes to three feet, but what other safety measures will be in these classrooms as kids return? Everything we've been doing since September is still going to be in place. Um, So layering the mitigation strategies one one on top of the other as we've done. Uh, The research tells us the two most important mitigation strategies, more important than distance, are masks and airflow. So, you know, all, all year when I go to my classrooms, uh, you've got windows open, you've got fans running, uh, even when it's cold, um, everybody wears their masks, um, and that's absolutely critical. Um, you know, our, our mask compliance in our schools is nearly universal, um, and I'm on our schools every day. So all the stuff we've been doing, we're going to keep doing. We're just going from six feet to three feet, which the science says is safe. And now there will still be, I don't know if this is at every district, but will there still be a remote option for those uh, children whose parents want them to stay home? Yes. And what are you, are, what are you seeing? I'm not sure you can see this, uh, the, the numbers, but are, more, are, are most students, families want them in school? Are most kids going to be back um, and not using that remote option? Overwhelmingly so. So in Hamburg, uh, we had, at the start of the year, uh, nine or ten percent of our students uh, were uh, opted into the remote model, and then 90, 91 percent of our students attended in person. Uh, that number ranges anywhere from nine percent to 
uh, 18 or 19 percent across Western New York. But the overwhelming majority of students want to want to be in person learning with their classmates and in the company of our great teachers. Uh, and that number hasn't moved a lot, actually. Um, if you remember, we did a, the Erie Niagara School Superintendents Association did a survey of parents and asked how many of you would attend in person if we layered the mitigation strategies one on top of the other. Uh, and 80 some odd percent said that they wanted their kids in person. And that number has held firm since June when we did that study. And now that the elementary grades are getting back to school, are you hearing from parents of 6 to 12 uh, uh, how much they want their kids back full-time? And maybe even from the students, uh, they want to be back five days a week. Well, hearing that from parents of students is not new, Joe. You know, we've been hearing that since, uh, you know, for, for months now. Um, and, in fact, it's happening in, in, in large parts of the country. As Georgetown tracks. Um, in-person learning, hybrid learning, fully remote learning across the 200 largest school districts in the country. I just looked at it this morning. And as of today, 59.8% of the 200 largest school districts are learning fully in-person pre-K through 12 every single day, and it's safe. So people look around and they see that that's what's happening, and they wonder why it's not happening in New York. And, you know, like I said, it's April 25th. We have two months left, almost to the, to the day, two months left in the school year. Do you have any optimism that one of these, maybe next month, uh, we will see for the last couple of weeks uh, full five-week uh, classrooms at all grades? You know, Joe, I don't know. I don't know if I would say I'm optimistic. I'm always hopeful. I mean, I wake up every day hopeful that we can find a way to get all of our kids in person every single day because uh, it's so critically important for our children for so many reasons. Um, but, you know, I think the guidance we have in hand today is most likely the guidance that we're going to have between now and the rest of the year. I don't anticipate the New York State Department of Health of its own volition making any changes to the guidance. And most problematic in that guidance, Joe, is the use of the transmission rate matrix that's in the CDC guidance and that New York State Department of Health included in its guidance which says that you can't have your, your, your secondary school students at three feet of the mask, but the transmission rate in the community is, nine, is more than 99 cases per 100,000 over a seven-day period. Now, despite the fact that the research around that, um, you know, there's plenty of research that indicates that the transmission rate in the community really doesn't have much to do with whether or not kids are safe at three feet or six feet, regardless of how old, how old the kids are. It's in the guidance. We have to follow it, um, and I don't see that changing. It also does not look as though the trend line of community infections would get us below 100 cases for 100,000 over a seven-day period anytime soon either. So um, I think the only way that you'd have grades 6 through 12 kids in school every day during, the school, during this particular school year would be if one of these court cases um, results and that part of the guidance being struck uh, from the guidance. Um, you know, if it's determined that it's arbitrary and capricious and doesn't have a basis in the science, um, then that would uh, cause kids at middle school and high school to come back. But short of that, Joe, you know, I'm sad to say I don't see it happening. Now, you know, we talk about getting back to school, and that's the number one thing, getting back to school and children's health. Uh, but, you know, End of the year, you do have those uh, end of the year events. You know, there's always a prom. Uh, there wasn't last year. Are 
I, I don't know if at Hamburg or at any schools, are there any sort of end of the year events that weren't there last year that'll be there for students this year? Yeah, I think school districts all across Western New York, I know in Hamburg, our, our high school administrative staff, you know, they're working with the, the student government kids at the high school, working with the senior class advisors uh, to try to find a way to create uh, these experiences for kids, which are so critically important, the milestone experiences for children and for families. I mean, these are family accomplishments and family occasions, as you know, trying to find a way to blend together what we know we need to do to make the end of the year special for our kids. And, and, and the New York State Department of Health guidance, which we have, uh, that, that's restrictive in terms of what we can really do. You know, you can have a prom, but the kids can't dance unless they dance near their table in a taped-off area and rotate the dancing times, essentially is what you've got to do. Um, you know, everybody else other than people at your table have to be six feet apart the whole time. So it's, you know, the guidance creates a, a circumstance in that type of a setting that's really unwieldy and, frankly, somewhat, you know, I don't think the kids feel like that's going to be a ton of fun either. Um, so we're trying to find a way to you know, try to find venues for graduation, to try to get as many kids together as possible, so I, I know uh, that school districts across Western New York are working like crazy to figure it out. And great credit to our, our high school administrators. Um, you know, we work with them all the time on this stuff. As district administrators, they're working with their students and the class advisors. I mean, they're busting their rear ends to try to find a way to make it special for our kids at the end of the year. You know, so we, we talk, like I said, we talk a lot about this year, getting kids back to school this year. Uh, but let's fast forward to September. Uh, and let's go with the assumption that we're back school full time. Uh, are there going to be some learning curves, right? Especially for students that have not been in a building full time uh, for a year. Are there going to be plans for, say you're a senior, and you were doing hybrid your junior year, is there going to need to be that month to catch students up when it's back to in the in this classroom? Well, before we assume, Joe, that we're going to be back full-time, I think we have to acknowledge that there may be, you know, some conversation this summer about whether or not we should go back full-time, um, which I think would be totally inappropriate. Like, I just want to put it out there, Joe, that if we don't prioritize getting our students back, pre-K through 12, every single day, then we have failed our kids. You know, so I think we need to say that first. The New York State Department of Health um, needs to find a way to make sure we prioritize getting our kids back 100% every single day in September. That has not been the priority since the beginning of COVID. Um, it's not the priority today on April 25th as we sit here. Lots of other things have been prioritized over having our kids back full-time in school. So before we just assume we're going to be back full-time, I think we need to see something or hear something from the New York State Department of Health that tells us unequivocally that they're going to prioritize having our kids back pre-K through 12 every single day in September. I've not seen that yet in writing. I think we need to see it as soon as we can. It's absolutely imperative. It's a moral imperative. Did you, I gotta, I gotta ask you to look back a year ago. Did you think we would be here April 25th, 2021, still talking about not having K through 12 in school full-time? It was March 15th, Sunday night, 28, 29 school superintendents all in a room in Erie 1 BOCES when we made the decision ourselves as a group 
to close schools for until after the spring break. And on at, in that moment, we believe we're coming back after spring break. You know, little did we know or anybody else know that we'd still be sitting here asking ourselves the same question, when are we going to come back? <clears throat> but it's worth noting, in, in much of the rest of the country, that that's already a decided question because they've been back, um, you know, three feet in a mask and doing it safely for many, 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 many months. Uh, and, and school has been safe around the country. So uh, it just seems like in New York, we, we've been um, – have, we've had a particularly difficult time prioritizing uh, full-time in-person instruction, whereas other states have found a way to do it. Uh, let me ask you this. I know it's a, a issue of private uh, record, but do you, you know we're talking a lot about COVID hesitancy in the community. Have you heard of COVID vaccine hesitancy amongst teachers in any districts? Well, I mean, I, I think I think our, our our workforce mirrors the workforce of. of of every other uh, industry, right? I mean, we're, we're a reflection of society, so you've got some people who are early to want to go get vaccinated. I'm sure we have others um, who are um, less anxious to go do it. Um, you know, I, I would I would guess the majority of, of school workforces around Western New York have been vaccinated by this point. Um, the New York State Department of Health did uh, prioritize vaccinating school staff, which we thought was a step towards uh, prioritizing fully in-person learning. Um, but we kind of stopped short of it. We, we prioritized at, uh, vaccinating school staff, but then that was it. And then we, we stopped prioritizing in-person learning. Uh, but to answer the question you asked me earlier, Joe, about what do we do in September, that's why getting the kids in school every day now is so important. So we've got eight weeks to see where our youngest learners really are. Where are they in terms of their progression on literacy and numeracy? You know, wh- where are they in terms of, um, building those academic skills. But most importantly, Joe, it's about reconnecting kids to their love of learning. Um, you know, kids have to love learning. Kids have to love school. And it's our job to make sure that those early grades, we make sure they build the, the skills of literacy and numeracy and make sure they love school and feel efficacy for themselves as learners. And when kids are learning just, you know, in person a couple days a week, um, then they're not in person. I mean, they're still learning, but it's just not the same because learning is a, learning is a social experience the social activity it's done best when they can do it together with their classmates all their classmates every single day in the company of our great teachers we have great teachers all across western new york we have great teachers in hamburg and our kids need to be with their teachers every day not only is that the way learning happens best it's developmentally the most appropriate way for them to learn this might seem like an obvious uh, obvious question but do you think there will be students that who have been out of the school, you know, half a year, um, not full-time, that are going to have to either repeat a grade or go to summer school next year? Well, I think we have to be careful about how we talk about that, Joe. Um, here's the reality. Those, those, you know, in a broad sense, there are certain skills that, that are, you know, most likely and developmentally to be uh, developed at certain times in a child's life. But every child learns at a different pace. You know, we, we find you know we find ways to put kids in first kid, first grade, second grade, third grade according to age. But developmentally, kids are always in a different spot, even though they're in third grade. They're developmentally in different places. They're academically in different places. So we've always had to acknowledge that in school. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is not 
you know, is Johnny ready for third grade or is Johnny ready for algebra? The question is, what are our algebra teachers and our third grade teachers going to make sure they do to be ready for the kids who come to us, regardless of, of what the impact of COVID has been? Uh, so I think that's and that's the that's the, that's what I hear from the educators. That's not me saying, hey, educators, this is what you need to do. This is educators telling me uh, as an educator, as a superintendent, that that's that's the work that they're going to be focused on. You know, what what do I need to do to make sure that I'm ready for the kids who are going to come to me? Um, and, the, and what they also tell me is that's always the work. You know, that's the work of public education. You know, we take every child who comes to us. We take them as we are. We love them as they are. We teach them as we are. And we take them as far as they can go and make sure they get everything they need. So, you know, that's, that's always been the work of public educators and will continue to be the public educators, even as we emerge from hybrid learning or whatever model of learning kids have been in. In September, we take them as they are. We love them as they are. We teach them as they are. And, and you know, we give them everything they need. Michael, I appreciate you joining me on a Sunday. I'm sure we will uh, have you on again very soon. Okay, good talking to you, Joe. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. That's Michael Cornell, superintendent of Hamburg Central Schools, also the president of the Erie Niagara School Superintendents Association. All right, a few days ago, Brian Mazurowski and myself on a show called Be Maz and Beamer uh, talked to Amesh Adalija from Johns Hopkins, and he talked about uh, what it's like, what it means to kids to be isolated Uh, some for over a year now without going to school. And here is a little bit of that interview. That's definitely the case. It's legitimate for parents to be worried about how a new infectious disease impacts children. But what we've seen throughout this pandemic is a lot of data accrue that show that children are generally spared the severe consequences of this disease, and they're not necessarily the major spreaders of infection uh, the way they are with influenza. It's a very different disease even than influenza, where you see a bigger mortality hit in children and more epidemiological spread related to children. And that data has accrued over this pandemic. And I think it's become clear that that many of the decisions that were made for children were really COVID-centric and not over taking the overall health of the child, the psychosocial development, educational needs, other risks that might that, that may happen, mental health, all of that needed to be thought about, especially in children, because they're so vulnerable when you tie when you try to think about you know, how to adapt your your uh, your behaviors because of COVID-19. And thankfully, children are a group where I think you can be a lot more flexible and we have a lot more room, especially as more and more adults are vaccinated. Yeah, doctor, speaking of that, uh, you know, uh, adults are being vaccinated and the main risk is children passing that on to older family members. What are we seeing with kids that have been out of school now, some for over a year of physical schooling? What are those other health consequences um, when you're looking at just COVID-19? What are the other health consequences from keeping kids out of the classroom and out of those social settings? So first of all, we know that they're not learning as efficiently as they would in the classroom. And I'm not a pediatrician, but so I, I'm, I'm going to talk in more generalities. We know that children need social interaction for their psychosocial development, but that helps their overall well-being. And, and it's really something that is interlocked with how they grow to be adults, to be healthy adults. And what's happened is there's been really deprivation that's been going on uh, for these children in some of the parents where, where there might have been really uh, aggressive worry about COVID-19 or in places where they weren't able to go to schools or weren't able to go to playgrounds. All of that has a, has a toll and will pay for that eventually. We even see health benefits in terms of 
um, childhood vaccinations, they went down during the height of the lockdown. So our protection in our children against diseases like measles, where you in New York State had a major outbreak a couple of years ago, uh, all of that has to be taken into account. And we have to not kind of trade the short-term, the short-term, short-term gains from a COVID perspective against the long-term issues. So I think that's happened in, in general throughout this pandemic, that there was a lot of a prioritization of the short term over the long term and not much long range principle thinking of what's sustainable and what's not sustainable. And, and I do think now it really is incumbent on every school district to open. We have the data. We have the ability to, to do this safely. We've had that data for some time. And now we have a lot of teachers that are vaccinated, the vast majority of them. There's really no excuse uh, not to have the, the at least a pedagogical part of school, sitting in school, learning about algebra and math and reading. Sports are a little bit different. It's a little bit more difficult to do because there's more risk of transmission than actually sitting in a desk. But the actual core function of schools is to teach children, and I think that needs to start immediately. It should have started a long, long time ago in many school districts around the around the country. We mentioned you're uh, quoted in the New York Times in an article posted today, and this kind of stuck out to me because it applies to what we're talking about, but then it can also apply to so much more. Uh, And you said it's really important to look at a child's overall health rather than a COVID-only perspective. And for much of the last year, we've kind of, I compared it to like the Budweiser Clydesdales, and you see them walking around, but they got those blinders on the side. So they're not distracted by anything else. They're only focused on the task at hand. And in a large part, we've all been kind of wearing that because it is an important task to handle this, to manage it, and to try and best get rid of COVID as best we can. But outside of schools and in kind of our everyday life, have you seen that approach make an impact that was not intended in other areas? Definitely. And it's not just in children. We know, for example, that cancer screenings like colonoscopies and and uh, mammograms, those went down during the pandemic. We know that people delayed care uh, for many other reasons. Uh, I also, I work a little bit in an emergency department in the Pittsburgh suburbs, and all of a sudden there just weren't patients there with abdominal pain or chest pain or or stroke symptoms. We don't know where those people went. Uh, Those diseases still continue to occur. And I think that in general, what happens during a pandemic is that there is, and you've got politicians and policymakers who are looking at the task at hand, and they're not, they're not thinking about long-term consequences because they're scared. They don't know what to do. They, um, they're worried about their constituency. They need to be, they're worried about staying in office. All of that's going to create this kind of incentive to think short-term at the task at hand and not think about these other consequences, which they think they can kind of kick down the road. And, and that's what, what's happened with, with COVID-19. So we've seen, for example, there was an article today about how bad HIV care was disrupted during the pandemic. We'll pay for all of that in the future. But it's just because it didn't happen all acute all at once the way COVID-19 was, it, it, doesn't take, it doesn't have the same impact on people's minds. And I think that's something we have to get better with the next infectious disease emergency we face. We have to think more long range. We have to think about what's sustainable and what isn't sustainable and and really remember that we still have to continue to function as a society, even with there's a pandemic. We can do both things. There's not this false alternative where you let COVID-19 run rampant on the one hand, or you have a Wuhan style lockdown forever or a New Zealand, Australia type of model forever. That's not the alternative. The alternative is something like Taiwan. We need to have a public health infrastructure that can test, trace, isolate and vaccinate in a way that allows us to be able to go about our activity safely, not worried about, with less worry about this virus. And I think that that was lacking for most of the United States. And it's really because the government failed. And it was government failure after government failure after government failure, starting in January. 
uh, with basically large-scale evasion from the highest levels of government about what this meant, taking the wrong action. That was Dr. Amesh Adelija from Johns Hopkins joining Brian Mazarowski and myself on a little show called BMAZ and Beamer. You can catch it weekdays 9 to 10. Joining us next is Dave Leventhal from Business Insider. But first, a check of the news. Well- Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back. Final segment here on Hardline. On News Radio 930 WBEN. And as always, it is great to be joined by Dave Leventhal from Business Insider. Dave, happy Sunday. Good morning. And a happy Sunday to you, Joe Beamer. Well, I have to say, there's there's so much politics. You know, this might be the first hard line in a while that all four segments were four different topics. Now, with Dave, we're going to talk about a lot of topics. But I don't think we'll be talking schools, the New York governor's race, and speed zone cameras in the city of Buffalo. So, I mean, all different topics covered today on Hardline. And, Dave, uh, the first question I got to ask is something we had in our bottom of the hour news. Joe Biden's uh, first 100-day polling numbers. Yeah, they're coming out, uh, multiple polls, and showing that he's uh, definitely doing better than Donald Trump was doing at this time four years ago in Trump's presidency, but historically not doing as great as some Republican presidents or Democratic presidents have done, again, at this time through the first 100 days. So that, that's not at all surprising, Joe, because the electorate is still incredibly divided. We're coming off an incredibly polarizing election. And when you add that all up, it, it would be truly shocking if Joe Biden's numbers had gone through the roof, if he was at, you know, say, 70 percent or 75 percent approval rating. But uh, it's, it's kind of a victory of sorts for him and that he's doing better than he could be doing. Uh, if he was at 45 percent or 40 percent, that would be a huge indication that, uh, that uh, not only Republicans, who generally do not like Joe Biden, but also some Democrats were not real thrilled about Joe Biden. That's not the case. And, and almost in a way, the, the biggest constituency that Joe Biden has to worry about uh, right now is not Republicans, uh, but uh, progressives in his own party, people on the far left, uh, the, the real liberals among liberals. And he's been able to, at least in large quarters, been able to uh, kind of uh, gather them in and be able to at least satisfy 
some of their concerns during his presidency and, and not alienate them in a way that was going to hurt him politically. That's what we're seeing really from these polls. You know, Dave, as someone in Washington, D.C., I have to ask you, uh, you know, we, we talk about how divided this country is politically almost on a daily basis. Um, do you think someone who looks at these numbers, someone who lives and breathes and everything politics, do you think that we will ever see the day where a president can get much above a 50 percent approval rating? Yeah, in, in politics, it, you know, we're, we're so steeped in the moment, and and news is coming at you so fast. And in these past couple of years, have, have just been so disorienting in so many different ways, politically, economically, health-wise, of course, given the COVID pandemic. And and we've been living really for the past uh, decade plus in, in a pretty polarized time. But if you go back to, say, 1984, I mean, Ronald Reagan, he... He won 49 out of 50 U.S. states. Uh, now, are, are we when he won the presidential election that year? Are we going to return to that uh, type of uh, of unanimity around the country? I, I doubt any time soon. But it's very difficult to predict uh, what the the political ebbs and flows are going to be over the next 20 or 30 years. So. I think this is one of those situations where you can never say never, even if over the next few years things are probably going to remain largely the same. Now, Dave, I saw a story this week, and I didn't understand it, so obviously I have to ask you because I know you'll understand it, and you'll be able to explain it to me, and I'll, I'll, feel, uh, I'll feel very intelligent on the topic, and that is— Giving me too much credit here, Jeff. <laughs> this is the passage of a 51st state— uh, I believe it's either passed or been introduced in Congress uh, to make Washington, D.C. a 51st state. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, so the U.S. House did pass a, a measure to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state. The bill now goes to the U.S. Senate, where its prospects are, are decidedly more dim. And uh, if you're a betting person, you, you should probably bet hard against D.C. becoming, at least in this congressional term, uh, a, a U.S. state. Uh, the votes just don't simply seem to be there in the Senate, where you not only need 50 votes, but because of the filibuster, you need 60 votes in this case to, to go ahead and, and push forward that bill. Were it to go forward in the Senate that did something very surprising and actually passed that bill, then Joe Biden were to go to his desk would likely sign it. Uh, he's indicated in Telegraph that he would uh, he would sign a bill to make D.C. the 51st state. But Really here is it's just kind of two you know major, major issues, overriding issues that are part of this debate. On one side, you have most Democrats, almost all Democrats, uh, really, who are involved uh, saying that this is an issue of fairness and this is an issue of, uh, of defranchising, uh, disenfranchising voters. So, you know, I live here in Washington, D.C., in, in the District of Columbia, the city itself. And if I look across my street, I'm looking out my window right now, Joe, and I see the state of Maryland. We're, we're literally 200 feet from it. And if you live 200 feet away from where I am right now, you have a representative in Congress who's voting for you. You have two senators who are voting for you. Uh, here in Washington, D.C., we have neither. Uh, so there are 750,000-odd people who live in the District of Columbia, which is more than several small U.S. states, such as Wyoming, for example. And, uh, and, and we don't have votes in Congress uh, as residents of Washington, D.C. The flip side of that is many Republicans are arguing very strongly that 
hey, Washington, D.C., most everyone here in Washington, D.C. is a Democrat or a Democratic-leaning independent. So their argument is that this is just a political power play. And if Washington, D.C. becomes a state, it's going to be a Democratic state for decades and decades and decades, which means two new Democratic senators always and a new Democratic House member. So the political calculus of all of this very much comes in play, uh, and, and not just the taxation without representation, which literally appears on the D.C. license plate as part of the argument on the other side. Has there been a, a counter offer? right? Like, have Republicans said... If you, you know, if you want senators, let's make the district part of a Virginia congressional district or a Maryland congressional district. Has that been floated out there or is it really just this idea and we either love it or we hate it? It has been floated out there. And this is kind of an intriguing twist in all of this. Uh, Mitt Romney, for example, the Utah senator, Republican, very moderate uh, by Republican standards, has uh, kind of backed an idea of having the District of Columbia, the city uh, of Washington, D.C., become part of the state of Maryland, thereby giving it representation that many people in the district want. Now, the counter-argument, especially from the leadership of Washington, D.C., which has its own mayor, has its own city council, effectively saying, well, D.C. is not Maryland, and D.C. has a very different culture, it has a very different history, and like any other state, it should stand alone and not be subsumed by Virginia uh, or Maryland. If you really want to dig deep into history, part of Washington, D.C., back in the 1800s, did become part of the state of Virginia. And that's uh, what we now know is certainly the Arlington, Alexandria area, uh, part of that. So, so there is some historical precedent if you really want to go <laughs> back deep into the history books, uh, but but not any modern-day analogy. That seems to be a non-starter of becoming part of Maryland, but it definitely is an offer out there for at least some Republicans who are willing to entertain a compromise of that sort, Joe. All right. The last question I'll ask you on this, I'm sure you didn't think you were going to get this many questions about the 51st state. Um, Are there any Democrats, you know, I think of Joe Manchin when I think of Democrats that might not be leaning with the party. Are there any Democrats that don't support this or have signaled they won't support this? They are almost in lockstep uh, supporting it. Joe Manchin is always the the wild card here. And uh, Joe Manchin, if you're not familiar with him, senator from West Virginia, definitely the the most conservative, again, relatively speaking, among Democrats uh, in the U.S. Senate. And, And somebody also, too, who has been steadfast against getting rid of the Senate filibuster, which makes that that magical 50-vote number a magical 60-vote number. He's been very, very set against uh, getting away and doing away from uh, the filibuster, as many Democrats would like to do in order, in their opinion, to to push uh, a Democratic agenda and uh, something that they would, <laughs> of course, very much like uh, like to do themselves. So, yeah, you know, Joe Manchin is going to loom large over this debate about D.C. statehood or any debate, really, that's uh, going to be coursing through Congress. But, you know, the Democrats are going to need more than just Joe Manchin at this point. They're, they're really going to need uh, some Republicans to come over to their side for D.C. statehood to become reality in the next two years. But, but we're not talking about, you know, beyond that. Uh, the Senate were to go more Democratic in the future, then we have a very different conversation that we're going to be having. All right, Dave, I have to, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking at what's going on in D.C. And, you know, again, with COVID going on, some stories you get for a week or so, and then you stop following them. And I got to ask you, what is going on with with Congressman Matt Gates? (laughs) 
so very much, uh, although it's been quite in a holding pattern right now. The, the Florida congressman is uh, is about, uh, you know, in the whitest hot spotlight for all the wrong reasons that you could possibly have for a member of Congress. We know that he is under active investigation by the Justice Department as to whether he engaged or was involved in sex trafficking involving potentially, allegedly, reportedly a 17-year-old. He denies that he's done anything wrong in this regard, but also the U.S. House separately has opened an investigation not only into that, but also into Matt Gaetz's conduct as a congressman, uh, whether he's violated campaign finance rules, whether he's been quite literally showing uh, pictures of naked women on the U.S. House floor. So these are areas that, uh, while they might not rise to the level of criminality, also could violate House rules and put him in peril for uh, for sanctions or even expulsion, if it got to that point, uh, for his conduct as a congressman in the U.S. House. So he's having a pretty uh, difficult run here, and his future is incredibly hazy. We've done a ton of reporting um, around this issue and uh, wrote a story recently, um, one of my colleagues here in the Business Insider DC Bureau, uh, about how this is not a, a new thing for Matt Gates. Uh, how even, uh, and we talked to dozens and dozens of people who've known him, even going back to high school classmates who said there, there's been a pattern of this uh, going back years. So yeah, he's uh, not gonna resign, so he says. He is not leaving office, so he says, but he's definitely got uh, a lot of things that are not in his control going to at least in part, determine his future as a politician, as an elected representative and leader. And uh, also, if you want to play it out to its uh, extent, a, a free man. Now, this might have been a week or two ago, but was there not a Venmo link to this story? There was. And there, there's all these crazy twists and turns, including one of his friends and associates uh, who is in even greater legal jeopardy than him for uh, sex-related uh, allegations. And uh, there had been a series of payments made between the two men on the Venmo financial app, which if you've never used it, it's, uh, it's a little weird in the sense that you can publicly let people know how you're spending your money. And there were all these sorts of different weird memo items and messages sent back and forth that uh, sort of indicated that there may have been financial transactions related to sexual type things. So yes, that's absolutely in the mix here. Another just bizarre twist and bizarre turn that's been part of this ongoing now weeks long saga involving Matt Gates. And Dave, we know uh, you will keep us updated at Dave Leventhal and at Politics Insider. Um, going back to DC, and, you know, we hear this all the time, right? We hear during campaigns, infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. And then once the campaign's over, you never hear about the infrastructure. Well, we're, we have heard about certain infrastructure plans this week, correct? We have. And in, in this is going to be one of those times where instead of infrastructure just dying off and you, you hear about it and then never hear about it again, this is going to dominate the uh, policy discourse uh, to, to get away from the salacious stuff here for a second. Uh, the, the hardcore nuts and bolts policy discourse of 2021 is absolutely going to be dominated by talk of infrastructure. And, uh, you know, the question I get from people so often uh, when you talk about infrastructure is, well, OK, what does infrastructure actually mean? And that's really the debate, Joe, that we're having here in Washington, D.C., as to what the definition of infrastructure is going to be in terms of putting money behind it. 
Republicans generally would like to see a much more narrow definition of infrastructure as part of a multi-billion or multi-even trillion dollar bill that's being uh, now pushed forward in, in Congress. They'd like to see it focused on roads. They'd like to see it focused on bridges, on highways, maybe train travel. But, but you know, sort of the basic trappings of, of physical infrastructure. And, and Democrats, by and large, would like to see the definition of infrastructure expanded to not only just include all the things I just mentioned, but also broadband Internet, uh, different types of communication. Uh, you, you could be talking about infrastructure in, in the, the most liberal and broadest terms than Democrats are right now. So that's why you see Republicans arguing for something that's going to be measured in the hundreds of billions of dollars for a big infrastructure package. And Democrats are, are arguing for something that's going to be much bigger, um, maybe even exponentially bigger in the at minimum $2 trillion level. And some Democrats, although they're not going to get their way, would like to see it even be bigger than that. So, you know, there's there's definitely room for compromise here, and there almost certainly will be compromise. Joe Biden himself has said that there will almost certainly have to be compromise, but this is going to be a protracted, months-long debate that isn't going to have a, a clear resolution, likely until, uh, I would say, the fall at minimum, if not beyond that, Joe. All right, Dave, this week you had former President George Bush in the news and former President Donald Trump in the news. And it made me think this. They really symbolize two factions of the Republican Party. And our first guest today, Joel Giambra, who is running for um, governor of New York, said that, you know, the, the Republican Party is moving too far to the right and it will never win in New York and that members of the Republican Party have to separate themselves from Donald Trump. So I'm asking you in D.C., is there any sign of a that being the belief of Republicans um, in D.C. and any Republicans starting to separate themselves from Donald Trump as we get to the 2022 election? Yes, there are some. Uh, are they a majority? Heck no. Are they a very small minority at this point? Yes. At this point in time, Joe, the vast majority of Republicans remain on Team Donald Trump and uh, support Donald Trump, would like to see Donald Trump be president right now instead of Joe Biden be president. So until there is some sort of seismic change, uh, something that happens in the Republican Party to to, to cause Donald Trump to lose his perch as the leader of the Republican Party, which for all intents and purposes he very much is right now, then Donald Trump is, is still going to, to dominate Republican Party politics. Uh, he's doing so right now from um, Mar-a-Lago, his, uh, his resort and, and residence in Florida. He uh, We actually just reported uh, in, in an exclusive that he's going to be turning his base of operations starting next month uh, up to Bedminster, New Jersey, where he has a golf club. So that's going to sort of become the physical epicenter capital of Republican Party politics, at least for the summer months, before he moves back down to Florida again in true snowbird fashion. Um, but the Republicans who, uh, you know, like Joe, Joe Giambro, like uh, a few members in the House who, for example, voted to, uh, to convict Donald Trump uh, you know, for impeachment charges or who voted in the House to impeach him, they are definitely a very, very small minority right now. So I would not expect that to change dramatically over the next few months. Uh, what could be the biggest impetus for change is if Republicans get their clocks clean during the midterm elections in, in 2022. Now, is that going to happen? Is that not going to happen? Who knows at this point? But that, in a way, would be just a, you know, sort of a 
double knockout punch for Republicans if, if they lost bigger in 2022 than they did in 2020, when Republicans definitely did lose a lot. They lost the Senate and they lost the White House, even if they were able to claw back at least some seats in the U.S. House, but still don't have that. All right, Dave, last question. Who do the Bills take in the draft next week? Oh, man, you're, you're catching me flat foot. I think they're going to take a running back in the first round. But... Uh-uh, you and I are in agreement. I also think a running back in the first round. I, 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 that seems to be a, an obvious missing piece. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe they, uh, they they go and take a, take a punter or something crazy in, in the <laughs> first round. But I doubt it. I, I think they're going to go running back. I think they're going to double down on offense. All right, Dave. Well, you know, I talk to you uh, before you go on with Susan Bryan every Tuesday, so it'll definitely be something we're talking about. Well, we're, we're going to know pretty soon, Joe. Go That's ahead. right. Dave, thank you so much for joining me on a Sunday. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Dave Leventhal from Business Insider. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. Thank you, Joel Giambra, Rashid Wyatt, Michael Cornell, and Dave Leventhal. Thank you for listening. If you missed any of the show, it's on demand at WBEN.com and on the Odyssey app. Don't forget, get your day started with us tomorrow, starting with A New Morning with Susan Rose and Brian Mazarowski. B-Maz and Beamer, 9 to 10. Bella Villa, 10 to 2. Tom Bowerly, 2 to 6, and Tom Puckett, 6 to 7. Have a great Sunday, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow here on WBEN.